Chapter Thirteen of Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal by Sarah J. Richardson. Chapter Thirteen. Landlady's Story Continued. The poor girl was overjoyed to meet her friends again, but how great was our astonishment and indignation when she informed us that she had never received a single line from home after she entered the school. Nor did she ever know that we had called to see her until we informed her of the fact. Whenever she expressed surprise that she did not hear from us, they told her that we had probably forgotten her, and strove to awaken in her mind feelings of indignation, suspicion, and animosity. Not succeeding in this, however, they informed her that her father had called, and expressed a wish that she should become a nun, that he did not think it best for her to return home again, nor did he even ask for a parting interview. Confounded and utterly heartbroken, she would have given herself up to uncontrollable grief had she been allowed to indulge her feelings. But even the luxury of tears was forbidden, and she was compelled to assume an appearance of cheerfulness, and to smile when her heart-strings were breaking. We brought forward the letters we had received from time to time, which we believed she had written. She had never seen them before. And this, said she, is not my handwriting. Of this fact she soon convinced us, but she said she had written letter after letter, hoping for an answer, but no answer came. She said she knew that the superior examined all the letters written by the young ladies, but supposed they were always sent after being read but it was now plain to be seen that these letters were destroyed and others substituted in their place. Footnote. Raphael Ciocci, formerly a Benedictine monk, in his narrative, published by the American and Foreign Christian Union, relates a similar experience of his own when in the Papal College of San Bernardo. Being urged to sign a deed of humility in which he was to renounce all his property and give it to the college. He says, I knew not what to think of this deed of humility. A thousand misgivings filled my mind, and hoping to receive from the notary an explanation that would assist me in fully comprehending its attention, I anxiously said, I must request, sir, that you will inform me what is expected from me. Tell me what is this deed, whether it be really a mere form, as has been represented to me, or if. Here the master arose, and in an imperious tone interrupted me, saying, Do not be obstinate and rebellious, but obey. I have already told you that when you assume the habit of the order, the chapter De Humititate shall be explained to you. In this paper 
you only have to make a renunciation of all you possess on earth. Of all I possess? And if I renounce all, who, when I leave the college, will provide for me? The notary now interposed. That, said he, is the point to which I wish to call your attention. In advising you to make some reservation, if you neglect to do so, you may find yourself in difficulties, losing, as you irrevocably will, every right of your own. At these words, so palpable, so glaring, the bandage fell from my eyes, and I saw the abyss these monsters were opening under my feet. This is a deception, a horrible deception, I exclaimed. I now understand the deed of humility, but I protest I will not sign it. I will have nothing more to do with it. After spending two or three hours in bitterness and woe, I resolved to have recourse to my family. For this purpose, I wrote a long letter to my mother, in which I exposed all the miseries of my heart, related what had taken place with regard to the deed of humility, and begged of her consolation and advice. I gave the letter into the hands of a servant, and on the following morning received a reply, in which I was told, in gentle terms, to be tranquil, not to resist the wishes of my directors. Sign unhesitatingly any paper that might be required, for when my studies were completed and I quitted the college, the validity of these forms would cease. This letter set my doubts at rest and restored peace to my mind. It was written by my mother, and she, I felt assured, would never deceive me. How could I for one moment imagine that this epistle was an invention of my enemies, who imitated the handwriting and affectionate style of my mother? Some persons will say, you might have suspected it. I reply that in the uprightness of my heart I could not conceive such atrocious wickedness. It appeared utterly irreconcilable with the sanctity of the place, and with the venerable hoariness of persons dedicated to God. After perusing the letter, I hastened to the master, declaring my readiness to sign the deed of humility. He smiled approvingly on finding how well his plan had succeeded. The notary and witnesses were again summoned, and my condemnation written. The good notary, however, pitying my situation, inserted an exceptional clause to the total relinquishment of my rights. No sooner was this business concluded than the master commanded me to write to my parents, to inform them that I had signed the deed of renunciation, and was willing, for the benefit of my soul, to assume the monkish habit. He was present when I wrote this letter. I was, therefore, obliged to adopt the phrases suggested by him, phrases breathing zeal and devotion, full of indifference to the world 
and tranquil satisfaction at the choice I had made. My parents, thought I, will be astonished when they read this epistle, but they must perceive that the language is not mine, so little is it in accordance with my former style of writing. Reader, in the course of thirteen months, only one of from fifty to sixty letters which I addressed to my mother was ever received by her, and that one was this very letter. The monks, instead of forwarding mine, had forged letters imitating the handwriting and adopting a style suited to their purpose, and instead of consigning to me the genuine replies, they artfully substituted answers of their own fabrication. My family, therefore, were not surprised at the tenor of this epistle, but rejoiced over it, and reputed me already a saint. They probably pictured me to themselves on some future day with a mitre on my head, with the red cap, nay, perhaps even wearing the triple crown. Oh, what a delusion! Poor deceived parents! You knew not that your son, in anguish and despair, was clashing his chains and devouring his tears in secret, that a triple bandage was placed before his eyes, and that he was being dragged, an unwilling victim, to the sacrifice. Returning home soon after, Chiochi rushed to his mother and asked if she had his letters. They were produced when he found that only one had been written by him, the rest were forgeries of the masters. It follows then, said my father, that these letters are forgeries, and the excuses they have so often made are base falsehoods. A teacher of the religion of Jesus Christ, guilty of lying and forgery, O oh, my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly mine honour, be thou not united. But we have our darling home again, said I, and now we shall keep her with us. Never shall I forget the sweet, sad smile that came over her pale face as I uttered these words. Perchance even then she realised that she was soon to leave us, never more to return. However this may be, she gradually declined. Slowly but surely she went down to the grave. Every remedy was tried, every measure resorted to that seemed to promise relief, but all in vain. We had the best physicians, but they frankly confessed they did not understand her disease. In a very few months after her return, we laid our lovely and beloved sister beneath the clods of the valley. Our good old physician wept as he gazed upon her cold remains. I believe he thought she was poisoned, but as he could not prove it, he would only have injured himself by saying so. As for myself, I always thought that she knew too many of their secrets to be allowed to live after leaving them. And now, dear, she continued, do you think it strange that I hate the Romanists? 
Do you wonder if I feel like swearing when I think of priests and convents? Truly, I did not wonder that she hated them, though I could not understand what benefit it could be to swear about it. But I did not doubt the truth of her story. How often in the convent from which I fled had I heard them exult over the success of some deep-laid scheme to entrap the ignorant, the innocent, and the unwary. If a girl was rich or handsome, as sure as she entered their school, so sure was she to become a nun, unless she had influential friends to look after her and resolutely prevent it. To effect this, no means were left untried. The grossest hypocrisy and the meanest deception were practised to prevent a girl from holding communication with any one out of the convent. No matter how lonely or how homesick she might feel, she was not allowed to see her friends, or even to be informed of their kind attentions. So far from this she was made to believe, if possible, that her relatives had quite forsaken her, while those very relatives were boldly informed that she did not wish to see them. If they wrote to their friends, as they sometimes did, their letters were always destroyed, while those received at home were invariably written by the priest or superior. These remarks, however, refer only to those who are rich or beautiful in person. Many a girl can say with truth that she has attended the convent school, and no effort was ever made, no inducement ever presented to persuade her to become a nun. Consequently, she says that stories like the above are mere falsehoods, reported to injure the school. This may be true so far as she is concerned, but you may be sure she has neither riches nor beauty, or if possessed of these, there was some other strong reason why she should be an exception to the general rule. Could she know the private history of some of her schoolmates, she would tell a different story. I remember that while in the convent, I was one day sent upstairs to assist a superior in a chamber remote from the kitchen, and in a part of the house where I had never been before. Returning alone to the kitchen, I passed a door that was partly open, and hearing a slight groan within, I pushed open the door and looked in, before I thought what I was doing. A young girl lay upon a bed, who looked more like a corpse than a living person. She saw me, and motioned to have me come to her. As I drew near the bed, she burst into tears and whispered, can't you get me a drink of cold water? I told her I did not know, but I would try. I hastened to the kitchen, and as no one was present but a nun whom I did not fear, I procured a pitcher of water, and went back with it, without meeting any one on the way. I was well aware that if seen I should be punished, but I did not care. I was doing as I wish others would do to me, and truly I had my reward. 
never shall I forget how grateful that poor sufferer was for a draught of cold water. She could not tell how many days she had been fasting, for some of the time she had been insensible, but it must have been several days, and she did not know how long she was to remain in that condition. How came you here? I asked in a whisper, and what have you done to induce them to punish you so? Oh, said she, with a burst of tears, and grasping my hand with her pale, cold fingers. I was in the school, and I thought it would be so nice to be a nun. Then my father died and left me all his property, and they persuaded me to stay here and give it all to the church. I was so sad then I did not care for money, and I had no idea what a place it is. I really thought that the nuns were pure and holy, that their lives were devoted to heaven, their efforts consecrated to the cause of truth and righteousness. I thought that this was indeed the house of God, the very gate of heaven, but as soon as they were sure of me, they let me know. But you understand me, you know what I mean. I nodded assent, and once more asked, What did you do? Oh, I was in the school, said she, and I knew that a friend of mine was coming here, just as I did, and I could not bear to see her in all her loveliness and unsuspecting innocence become a victim to these vile priests. I found an opportunity to let her know what a hell she was coming to. Twas an unpardonable sin, you see. I had robbed the church, committed sacrilege, they said, and they have almost killed me for it. I wish they would quite, for I am sure death has no terrors for me now. God will never punish me for what I have done. But go, don't stay any longer, they'll kill you if they catch you here. I knew that she had spoken truly. They would kill me, almost if not quite, if they found me here. But I must know a little more. Did you save your friend? I asked. Or did you both have to suffer to pay for your generous act? Did I save her? Yes, thank God I did. She did not come, and she promised not to tell of me. I don't think she did, but they managed to find it out. I don't know how, and now, oh God, let me die. I was obliged to go, and I left her, with a promise to carry her some bread if I could. But I could not, and I never saw her again. Yet what a history her few words unfolded. It was so much like the landlady's story, I could not forbear relating it to her. She seemed much interested in all my convent adventures, and in this way we spent the night. End of chapter 13